Today we have actor, writer, musician, activist, comedian, Tommy Chong. Listen in as celebrities and amazing people share how they use their influence to change the world. Dive into their stories and discover their passion to keep living a legacy. Today we have actor, writer, musician, activist, comedian, Tommy Chong. Tommy, welcome to the show. Thank you. You forgot great granddaddy, too. I'm oh, a great granddad. Great granddad. Well, that's that's the most important title you got. <laughs> and I'm still uh, smoking, so I'm a smoking great granddaddy. You know, my wife tells me I'm smoking, or at least I say that my wife tells me I'm smoking, but, you know, that's more on the looks part. <laughs> Well, so how know, many how many great grandkids do you have? I have two, two All great right. ones. And I have four, five, six, six grandkids, and uh, yeah, yeah. We just got a brand new uh, grand granddaughter. She's uh, almost three months three months old now. Well, congratulations! Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, that's what happens when you get shut down. And you start having babies. <laughs> <laughs> that's right that's right yeah yeah you know yeah, exactly. everybody's been talking about the quarantini babies so so tommy do your do your kids live around you or are they spread all over the country or yeah, your family spread, some are spread but i got my oldest boy uh he's living here we're working together you know i got awesome. another, another son up in canada uh mm-hmm. up in uh vancouver island and uh then i got a daughter in toronto and, and I got my other two older daughters here, right in Vancouver, in uh, Los Angeles. No, we're fine. We're, we're fine. And I got my great grandkids here, too. And my grandson, Morgan. Uh, you know, remember Ray Don Chong? She's the, uh, the actress yeah. in the family. Uh, well, it's her son, Morgan, and his wife, uh, uh, Tracy. They had, uh, see, he was my gra- grandson. Morgan is my grandson. And so they had two babies, Harper and uh, Miles. And so that's my great grandkids, but you know we we can't see them too often because of the the shutdown, the pandemic. You know we don't want to be spreading anything. So, but we're close. We're we're. I got a I got a perfect life. So Tommy, tell me a little bit about your background. How did you get into acting and comedy and music? You know where did all that start? Well, it started I guess when I was really young you know i was uh eight years old when uh uh, my neighbor you know knew that i could play guitar and so then he uh kind of enlisted me and taught me how to play uh, back up his fiddle playing and so i was playing uh dances when i was eight nine years old and uh you know, that's country dances, so it's not like, uh, you know, just on the stage for 15 minutes. You know, this is like a, <laughs> a couple of, maybe uh, two or three hours of, uh, of hoedown music, you know. So I got a really good, uh, you know, start. Uh, because when you learn how to play a dance, you learn how to read people. You learn how to, first of all, you learn how to suffer, uh, to suffer your way through it. Right. You know, that, that's a that's a long haul, especially for <laughs> a young kid. But I got so you know, you get so wired when you're when you're entertaining like that. And that's what got me comfortable in front of uh, comfortable in front of entertaining people. 
And that's and so important. After that, yeah. yeah. Then, then, you know, a few years went by. Then I was in Army Cadets. Uh, when You know, in Canada, that's our uh, poor man's holiday, you know, because they would, when you're in Army Cadets, you get, uh, you go to camp for uh, six weeks and you get paid. And then you learn, you know, you know, learn how to do the, all the army stuff, you know, the marching and and uh, all that. And that taught me how to uh, march or how to my left foot from my right. So that's how I got into dancing. <laughs> and and so it's so it's my childhood that really. Uh, uh, and then uh, you know, and then uh, we start performing, you know, with a band. I got you know when I became a teenager, I started backing up an Elvis impersonator, and so then I got more stage time and then uh, as the years went by I was in you know uh, black rhythm and blues bands oh, wow. in Calgary with the first one so I got that experience and then uh, being in the black music uh, scene uh, we played because all the black clubs back in the day they always had a floor show and the floor shows always uh, had comedians uh, e- either uh, MCing or or headlining, and uh, or or just opening for for whatever dancer, usually a stripper or dancer, come on. And so I got, you know, I uh, got introduced to to vaudeville more or less. Okay. And then yeah, and then I got then when I was with Motown, I traveled around and I got to see second city and I got to see, uh, the committee in Los Angeles that got me into, you know, out of music and into, uh, uh, improvisational acting. And then, uh, I met Cheech and, uh, you know, together we just killed it in the record business. And, the, and then we made the up and smoke and, and, and that's where I learned how to direct because directing really, it is a matter of knowing what you want, you know, and, and then right, that's right. how, that, that's how you do it, you know? And so we knew what we wanted as far as uh, up and smoke goes and all the movies we did. And then uh, that led to television work, which was, uh, uh, you know, the, that 70s show. And, and then going to that 70s show was like going to school. Like I, I dropped out of high school. And so I never really got any formal training until I got to that 70s show. And because my part was so small, I would spend the rest of my time sitting watching the director and the actors. And he'd be teaching because the 70s show, there were younger kids. And so he would teach as well as direct. And so I got, I got uh, five years of uh, some really good uh, uh, learning experience, you know, how to act, how to how to read a script and, and how to do that. So I've been, you know, I've been kind of lucky, but it's sort of like, um, yeah. And, and also what, what, what kept me going or kept me is that uh, when I was young, when very young, we, we, we weren't that rich. In fact, we were pretty poor. Right. Uh, we lived in a, in a house, for seven years without any plumbing and uh, any running water, you know, it was like, uh, and I found out I'm 8% native. <laughs> and so I, I, I actually lived like a native for the first seven years of my life. And even longer, actually first 12, 13 years of my life, you know, that was 
like, like living on a reservation. And so, uh, you know, that when, when you live like that close to nature, uh, hard work is just part of the part of the life. You know, exactly. carrying the wood, chopping the wood, carrying the wood, carrying yeah. the water, uh, bringing out the slop pill, uh, feeding the animals. I mean, we had chores. And, and the, Butchering and the animals. It, yeah, it was not, not yeah. Well, that's why we ended up with a lot of pets because my dad, who was Chinese, you know, he would bring home chickens because back in the day, you know, you never worried about refrigeration. You just kept the animal alive until you're ready to use it. You know, and so he would bring home live chickens, but we'd make them pets. <laughs> and, and we grew our own food, you know, oh, we wow. had gardens. And it wasn't one of these, you know, gentleman gardens where you grew flowers or, or weed or, you know, pot or anything like that. This was like hard nose potatoes and carrots and, and stuff that you can eat over the winter. Because if you never had your garden, you never had your your uh, uh, your food in the, in the in the root cellar. You know, no one was going to come and deliver food to your door. You know? So, so I it was that early training that really uh, brought me to where I am now. You know, because as soon as I uh, you know got into show business, I found out how easy it was. Uh, yeah. So tell yeah, me, jump, jump back when, how you transitioned from a musician to a vaudeville type performer. How did that happen? Was there a story? Well, like I said, we, we, we were with Motown and, and I've always been a backup guitar player mm -hmm. and a background singer. You know, mm -hmm. that was, that was really my lot in life. You know, I never really, uh, I always attacked music like any other job, you know, something I could do, something I could get paid for. Right. <laughs> and, and you did as much as you had to. You know what I'm saying? You know, I never had that, the luxury of, of being given music lessons and, 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 you know, being, getting hooked on music that way. Right. You know, me, with me, it was always, you did what you had to do to get paid. And so when I uh, got with Motown and we got, taken to uh, Detroit in the big cities, you know, in LA and that, instead of going to music clubs, which to me was a waste of time, you know, I already had a job and, you know, I wasn't, you know, that interested in, 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 in learning, you know, I learned what I had to learn. But when I got to like Chicago, I, I discovered second city. And so when we have a day off, I'd go, the, the rest of the band would go either, you know, other clubs, music and that. I would go to the second city. I would pay and sit in the audience and watch uh, the improvisational actors like Peter Boyle and, you know, some really mm. hot, uh, good actors. And I got hooked into the improvisational scene. So because, it, again, it was like a, a lot of it was like my childhood, because when you grow up in the country, you, know, you have friends. But there's no toy store and there's no parent parental supervision. You know, you, you, the, you know, in the daytime, you just go play. OK, go play. Come home for dinner and supper and and uh, and, 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 uh, and, and and like that. Uh, so we uh, <laughs> uh, so I, so so when I saw the improvisational acting, it was like what, I, what we used to do on our uh, free, you know, in our in my childhood. Right. You know, 
And uh, and so it was right. natural. And, and so then I, I really got hooked on it. And then I then I, I discovered the committee in uh, Los Angeles. And then in the meantime, I, I had an after hours club. Uh, again, it was the the club was given to us. Actually, you know, the guy owned a building. He had an empty steakhouse, and he knew the band. And he said, "Hey, you guys want a nightclub?" And we said, "Yeah." And so I inherited this given a nightclub. Wow! And wow! Uh, and we and we turned that into a money maker. It took a few months, but we finally did it. And then. Uh, that club was so successful. Another club across town uh, was a dinner club, and they were doing pretty bad. So, and they were friends of mine, and so they said, "Do you want another club?" And we said, "Yeah." So we got an, we got another club, and I turned that one into the first Vancouver's first strip club, first uh, the strippers, and it was. Uh, and then I got fired from Motown, and so I came back to Vancouver to work on the clubs. And the only club that I was interested in was a strip club because, uh, you know, the after hours club, you know, they already had a band and, and I, and I was more into, uh, the acting. And so when I got the strip club, I'd work the lights and then watching the the show, I I started writing the show, uh, to make it more interesting. And I turned the strippers into actresses. And then, uh, then this MC that we had, uh, he worked, it was too much work for him. He quit. And so uh, the doorman, Dave, I, I said to Dave, I said, do you want to do the MC? And Dave said, I'll do it if you do it. And so next thing I know, I went from the light booth to the stage. And so, <laughs> and so she, he, he got yarded away. Because once we turned the club into, a, into an improvisational theater, then we started getting all the actors, all the actors and the, and the audience you know, that loved acting and that. And it was a kiss of death in a way because we, we eliminated all the drunk bikers that would spend money like crazy. And we turned it into a theater club where they would count their change and order uh, the minimum. You know, you got all the yeah. yeah, you got all the broke actors. Yeah. 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 And then we got all the broke actors. You're right. And, and the audience. <laughs> and so. Um, so uh, my my brother actually, you know, he was running the financial end of it. So he, he actually fired us. And so we got fired. The show got fired, even though it was really it got big acclaim in that. But, uh, you know, we weren't making the kind of money that you make out of drunk bikers. And so uh, Cheech and I, uh, Cheech was a singer, uh, you know, at least that's what he told me he was. And I was, you know, looking, you know, I was always thinking of forming another band, going back to my music uh, roots. And so Cheech and I formed a band. And uh, then we decided to do a little comedy before we played. And we never got around to playing. <laughs> we had the drummer and the piano player and the, and the, uh, the guys waiting, <laughs> the bass player in the room. They're waiting to go on stage. And Cheech and I stayed on for 45 minutes. It was a battle of the bands. And we actually won the battle of the bands because we, we never played a note. But we just killed the audience. They <laughs> loved us. They all, you know, there it was a dance club. And they all came forward, sat on the floor, watched our comedy, and just ate it up. And, and so then, I, you know, you don't have to uh, tell me twice. I saw the the writing, and so I told Cheech, I says, looks like we're going to be comedians, man. 
And so that night after we won the Battle of the Bands, we're driving home and my dad's car, it was pretty old, old Nash, the old Nash car. And it was in Vancouver and the rain was coming down and the windshield wipers weren't working. And so we had to take turns with a wire uh, coat hanger wrapped around the windshield wipers. And we had to lean outside the, the, the car and, and wipe off the windows while we drove. And, uh, <laughs> oh my and I remember uh, trying to think of a name for our, for our new comedy theme, you know, uh, Tommy and Richard. And, uh, because we didn't know his name was Cheech. And so his name was Richard Marin. Okay. And so it was Marin and Chong. No, that's good. So I said to, to Cheech, I said, do you have a nickname? He said, yeah, Cheech. And I said, Cheech and Chong. Perfect. Cheech and Chong. And it just rolled off the, my tongue. And I remember writing with my head out the window, Cheech and Chong, Cheech and Chong. And it sounded so cool. And, and that was the beginning of Cheech and Chong. And the rest is history. And the rest is history. Well, you know, we had to sneak Cheech back into Canada. I mean, into the States because he was, uh, he, had, he had left the States, uh, you know, to, to get out of the Vietnam War, you know, because they, they denied his, uh, his uh, school deferment, you know, his college deferment. And so they were looking to, to put Cheech in the war, you know, plus he's Mexican. And so... So he escaped up to Canada. That's how we met him in Vancouver. And so we went back down to make our make Cheech and Chong famous. He had to sneak in. It was like the first time we had a Mexican sneak into Canada, from, you know, into the States from Canada. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> and when we got, we got down here, I had a lot of friends from my rhythm and blues days. <clears throat> and I knew the, a lot of the black club uh, I knew my way around black clubs. And so when Cheech and I first came to town, the first gig we had was at Red Fox's nightclub on La Cienega. And, uh, really? Was, yep. And uh, it was an open mic night, you know, it was like, uh, you know, uh, audition night, you know. So we went on and Norman, uh, oh, what's her name? Nor Norma. I forget her last name. Anyway, she introduced us as uh, Cheek and Chank. <laughs> she couldn't <laughs> say Cheech and Chong. She got and here they are, Cheek and Chank. <laughs> and and we went on and uh, and we did our comedy. And there was a group of uh, people sitting there, and one was a Chicano. You know, he walked over to us after, walked over to me. He says, "Man, you guys got something here. You know, really." And and he introduced himself. He says, "I'm Tony Vascara." He says, "I was Lenny Bruce's uh, road manager." Oh wow! And it was Lenny's crowd. Lenny had just died a few years before, and they were the the crowd. His all his entourage were still hanging out together, like his mother uh, Sally Marr and and Tony and. Uh, and Jojo, and there was all this Lenny Bruce crowd. And so when they saw us, when Tony saw us, they said, wow, we were the closest to Lenny Bruce that he had seen. And so the, uh, Tony, he had a drug problem, but he ended up being, I, I had him as a roadie at one time, one stage of our life. But in the beginning, he was trying to be our manager, but we had to support him more, more than he could support us. And, uh, and so Cheech and I, we just... I, got, I had a little Honda 90 because um, 
you know, because uh, we couldn't afford gas or a car. And so we had little Honda 90 and we would uh, motor around to all the, the clubs where we could perform uh, on, on the scooter. And L.A., you know, they got a ton of clubs and they had some black clubs where we'd get paid. We'd get paid like 25, 50 bucks a show. PJs, uh-huh. we used to get, we used to get, yeah, 50, 50 bucks a piece, something, something like that, you know. And uh, yeah, we we just struggled around, and then we went to the Troubadour, and uh, we, we we became a regular at the Troubadour on Sunday nights. Wow, and, that's a big deal. Yeah, well, what happened? Uh, Troubadour, in order to be on the Troubadour, it was for folk singers, and. Uh, and in order to get a good spot, you had to be there uh, first in line when the when the box office opened. And so in order to make sure you're first in line, we would get there like at 9 o'clock in the morning. And then we would st- stay there all, all until 6 o'clock at night when, the, when they opened the doors. And then they would open the door. And we would stand in front of the, you know, hang out and eat sunflower seeds because that's all we could afford. <laughs> and, and so when the people came to, to the show, they'd be crunching over sunflower seeds shells. But anyway, we, we got, and then once we got the Troubadour gig, uh, well, we just killed, of course. You know, we were on at the best time. It was like we're headliners. And we were, we're given folk singers comedy. And Wow. I mean, the audience just loved us to death. And by that time, we had discovered Cheech's character, uh, the lowrider, you know, the Chicano. And so we were, we, <laughs> we ruled, we ruled that club. And we were there for, yeah, nine months, I guess. Uh, and then uh, we got discovered by Lou Adler. And, uh, and it was a, a showcase for somebody else. In the meantime, uh, my, my, uh, First marriage, you know, Maxine, uh, her brother is Floyd Sneed, and Floyd was the uh, drummer for the Three Dog Night. And, and so they had, they had seen us up in Vancouver, and so they were like our, one of our ends, and they tried to manage us for a while, but it, it didn't work out because, uh, you know, they, they were a music uh, crew. They weren't into comedy. And it was when we met Lou Adler that, uh, and then we did the, the comedy records, and then and that kicked us off. And then, you know, it was really funny because I'd, I'd played uh, for strippers uh, on a road show one time. And, and I got not, not involved, but I, I met all the, you know, the girls are all fun. They're all from L.A., beautiful black girls from uh, Los Angeles. And so uh, when, just after Cheech and I got signed, uh, I got a hold of one of the girls, Pandora. And and when she knew me, I was really clean shaven and short hair, and, and I was trying to be a black guy more than anything. <laughs> and uh, and so when when she saw me, I had the long hair and you know the hippie. And back then, hippies were like really looked down upon. Right. You know? We were the untouchables of the universe. And so she, when I talked to her on the phone, Pandora, oh, I, you know, I'm, I want to see you. I gotta. So she drove. And when she saw me, she didn't get out of the car. <laughs> she stayed in the car. She goes, uh, okay, see you around. <laughs> oh, wow. Out. And then next, I think about a week later, we got our big billboard on Sunset. <laughs> and I get a call from her. 
<laughs> she called me up. She said, hi, hi, I'm uh, in the bath. I'm having a bath. Uh, <laughs> you want to come over? <laughs> yeah, you're a little more appealing now when you get a billboard. <laughs> once you get that billboard. Now, yeah, once, once you saw that billboard, boy, <laughs> it changed everything. Everything changes. You know, I remember seeing it as a kid. I've got older brothers, and of course, that's playing in the house. And I, I remember the scene where, what was it? You guys are in the car, and you, all you see is like a cloud of smoke behind the windows and everything and we're you know, driving were, down the road yeah yeah, yeah. What, what were some of your favorite memories or or scene or or an actor that you know back in the days that just stands out and makes you laugh whenever you think about it well up in smoke was supposed to be a cheech and chong's greatest hits that's what lou adler uh, the director and uh and our you know our record producer, uh, because he had all the, the, the record. He, he, he envisioned a movie of us doing record bits. Uh, Cheech and I, we decided that we'd, you know, we'd make a real movie with uh, the two of our popular characters, which are Pedro and Man. And so we, uh, with Cheech's cousin, Louie, we wrote a, a, a script, you know, about a 45 page script. And, uh, and uh, and then I wrote a song called uh, Up in Smoke. And I played it for Cheech and Lou. And, and right away, Cheech says, that's the title of the movie. Well, once we got the title, then we started writing the, the movie. And uh, and we wrote sort of like the outline, you know, like the, uh, the van, us being deported, uh, us trying to get a band together, me being from a rich family. That was the whole point. I wanted to show... Uh, Cheech as the opposite. Cheech uh, from a very, uh, you know, Latino uh, family where they, you know, 15 in one house, you know, that kind of thing. And and him driving his his idea of a, of a low rider, you know, <laughs> what he could afford, <laughs> his love. And, and then me, the juxtaposition of me being from a, a rich Jewish family, which I really didn't realize until after years later that I realized because uh, Struthers Martin was Jewish. And, and, uh, and I believe uh, his wife, uh, uh, Edie, Edie Adams, was married to uh, that other comedian. Oh, God. Uh, um, I'll think of his name. But anyway, uh, we, we ad-libbed the whole movie. What we did, we would tell the actors basically the bare bones of the scene. And then they would come up with their own dialogue, like Struthers Martin. And so one of the, the greatest uh, lines uh, or dialogues or monologues in the movie is Struthers telling me to get a job by sundown where he's shipping me off to military school with that Finkelstein kid, kid son of a bitch. <laughs> And he had lived that whole that whole thing, and I'm doing my weightlifting thing behind him, you know, and, and ignoring just like kids would do, you know. Especially, I was supposed to be a kid, but I'm I'm a grown man, still living at home, you know. And then driving up with uh, the Volkswagen, it was Jack Nicholson's Volkswagen that he 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 gave it. He gave the really, us. yeah. He gave us his old Volkswagen, and then we had the the. Uh, the uh, Rolls Royce grill put on, and the art director—they come up with that idea. 
And the art director came up with uh, the band, the design of the, the marijuana band. I had written a little bit more, you know, for the marijuana band and that. But, uh, I mean, you know, we, we had the good people and we just went with it. Everybody got to ad lib, kind of write their own in the movie. You like, know, yeah, that's great, and, and and that's that's what made that movie so good. And we would write scenes uh, that weren't in the script. There's quite a few scenes in there that we would think of as we were setting up. Cheech Pete in the hamper. That was that was another one. Uh, I wasn't looking at his neck. You know the the Tom Skerritt uh, movie. You know where. Cheech tells me, hey, man, you know, whatever you do, don't don't mention, you know, don't say anything about his neck, you know, because he's been in Vietnam and he's he, he very sensitive about that. <laughs> <laughs> and then the first thing I say, <laughs> you know, he's looking at me and I wasn't looking at his neck, man. <laughs> I mean, uh, and then uh, the I think it was the special effects guy that that had the bird saying, you know, want to get high, want to get high. And then, poof, you see the feathers fly out. You the controversy that you brought at that time, how much backlash did you get from people that didn't like? I mean, so many people loved it, but there were there was always that other side. Oh, we never, we never dealt with the other side, ever, ever. Because we never came out of that world. They had to come into our world, you know. We never started straight and then went went rogue, you know. Like George Carlin started straight, uh, Richard Pryor, you know, they started straight. Then they went over to the other side, went over to our side. You know, we never we started right from the other okay, side. Yeah. Okay, okay. So we never we never had that criticism. <laughs> I, I got it later in, in life, you know. I mean, that's one of the reasons I, I think I went to jail because I would uh, be on uh, right wing uh, uh, radio in. Uh, in uh, uh, St. Louis, uh, and that was the home of John Ashcroft. And these right-wing right wing radio guys, they loved having me on because the phones would light up, everybody would yeah. get all upset because I was their, uh, you know, I was their, their nemesis or whatever. And, uh, and one time, and what I used to do to bug them, I used to out everybody, you know, and even I'd make up things, you know, about who, who smoked pot with? You know, I'd make it up. <laughs> like I, I did that with Bill O'Reilly, uh, you know, when, and, and the Fox loved that. And they'd always have me on it because they loved that, that, that conflict, you know? And so when, when I was on the radio with, uh, with, uh, with John Ashcroft town, you know, I, I outed uh, Danny Sullivan, the race car driver, you know, because they're telling me about, you know, what's it feel like, you know, uh, being uh, uh, getting more people hooked on drugs in Noriega, you know that was the answer. And I said, "Hey, listen, you, you know uh, 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 the race car driver, Danny Sullivan." Yeah, I said, "Well, I smoked up with him. He smokes pot, you know." <laughs> <laughs> and the phones lit up. And yeah, they did. I know Danny. You know, they all went crazy. Well, I do that, and and and, and it got me in trouble. <laughs> because then, when when uh, 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 what's his name uh, Bush uh, W goes to war in Iraq, they needed some sacrificial lamb, some hippie. You know, he was trying to do uh, Nixon. You know, and, and 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 jump on the hippies and get some headlines there. And so they came after me for bongs. 
you know. And they 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 said that uh, our bongs we made so much money and we were funding the Taliban. That's that's that was the lie they told on me. Oh my God! Was, yeah. yeah. What's and the correlation? Uh, the money, the the marijuana, the the bongs were like hippie, you know, hippie smoking pot, you see. And so uh, that's where we're making all the money because I thought we had a, a loophole there, you know. Uh, we weren't selling weed. We were selling bongs. I thought, you know, how can they bust you for a water pipe? Well, they did <laughs> because they could. And what they did, they, they came after me and they came after my kid, uh, my, my son, because it was his company, uh, Paris, my son, Paris, and my wife, Shelby. Uh, and they threatened to go after them. And, and this is what I see in what, what they're doing with Trump now. See, they're going after the kids and, and, and Ivanka, you see, because that's the way the feds work. They go for the soft kill, you know. They get the guys that shouldn't be in jail, won't be in jail, scare the crap out of them, and have them turn on their, uh, on their people so they won't get to the jail. Or in my case, where I'd say, okay, uh, I'll plead guilty if you don't bother my wife and kid, which I did. And then I ended but they, they lied. They said they were going to just give me house arrest, you know, because, you know, selling bonds is not a, you know, a big, big deal. But instead, as soon as I got in front of the judge, the judge said nine months, you know, because I'd been outing all these guys, <laughs> you know, lying. Well, doing my thing. Anyway, I, I didn't mind because, uh, you know, it was another adventure to me, you know. And, and I wrote a book and I had a good time in jail. And it wasn't bad. You know. So question for you. As, you know, the, the perception of marijuana has changed, especially throughout the United States and, and, and especially for um, even wildly conservative, when you when you look at insomnia, when you look at Parkinson's, when you look at ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, and, and pain MS. management, yeah, MS. You know how 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 have you seen that change? Because you know, oh. I, I personally, you know, came from, and and still a wildly conservative person, but then I've I've personally witnessed you know heroes of mine that suffered from these that never in a yeah. million years would have considered, and then to see the impact that it had in their life. I can't, I can't refute that. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, uh, the reason it was made illegal legal was when Sanjay Gupta had a, a baby, a one-year-old baby who was suffering from epilepsy. And then on TV, they, they showed the, the baby getting treated with uh, CBD and, and THC, Charlotte's Web, and eliminating the uh, epilepsy and hugging her mother for the first time since it was born. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine that? Now, when you see something like that, how are, how are you going to say, well, you know, it, it, uh, the hippies make it, you know, and they're funding uh, the Taliban with their bong sales, you know, forget it. We just saw a baby be cured with uh, this, this drug that is now, and, and they're taking, I don't know if they took it off the, uh, the uh, uh, no medical use schedule one yet, but it, it's on its way. It's going to be taken off that. And, and the minute they do that, then, then uh, you know, all the pot people will, will be able to bank our money. Because right now we can't, we can't put our money in the banks yet because it's still got the stupid laws on, on the books, you know. But 
but we're doing we're we're doing you know look at this pandemic pot shops are considered essential how about that <laughs> they're open really? bars are closed pot shops are open think about that well, and you bring up another point, and that was so funny we're having this discussion today, because as we speak, my 17-year-old son, his term paper is on legalizing marijuana. To my knowledge, he's never partaken, and he wanted something that was going to be controversial. But we were talking last night, and that was one of the other things that came up was uh, distributors have to do everything in cash, so it's still... You know, even though the public doesn't have to go to a shady part of town anymore, people that are distributing it, they're putting their life on the line because they can't put it in the bank. There's not it's also not taxed. So the government's not benefiting. But 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 everybody knows that you're carrying a lot of cash. So, yeah, speak into that a little bit of the concern well, for people. Well, when when, you know, uh, the riots started, uh, you know, a few months ago, uh, these these gangs, the criminals, they went and raided all the pot shops because uh, they knew, you know, that once, you know, the I forget what the riots were about, which one. Anyway, uh, San Francisco got taken, L.A., a lot of the pot shops got to, because they got cash in, in, in the building, you know, and they would go in there and, and they got robbed and then they robbed the product. You know, they take the product. That's what the DEA used to do. The DEA, when they came into my house, when they busted me for bongs, they found money that I had made from T-shirt sales. And they confiscated it because it was a drug raid. They could take everything. They took all my computers. They took all my money, cash money. And 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 then I got charged. I got fined. I, I forget, a hundred, couple hundred thousand dollars, you know, on top of that. And all that money was going in, into the DEA's pockets. You know, the guys and and and, and they, most of them were crooked because they would come across duffel bags full of cash and, and they would turn some of it in, maybe. But most of it got split up. In fact, I know of a, I know for sure a friend of mine was was uh, was uh, uh, driving huge amounts of weed into California from British Columbia using a uh, pickup truck, the U-Hauls. Uh, he had a U-Haul full of, of, of uh, marijuana and uh, BC Bud. And he got popped here in, uh, right in front of the Grauman's Chinese Theater because he told me they handcuffed him and put him on the sidewalk and they left him, but they didn't book him. They, they talked to him and his partner and they said, where's the safe house? And so they told him where the safe house was. And then they, a few hours later, they came back, took off the handcuffs and said, get out of here. Let him go. They, took the, they kept the marijuana and they kept all the money in the safe house. And the problem was, it was for the Hells Angels. They were the ones that were doing the dealing. And so when my buddy oh. got back, when my buddy got back to, <clears throat> to, uh, to BC, the Hells Angels told him, says, that's not my problem. You owe us for the weed and for the uh, for the money that was that was lost. And so my 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 buddy had to. Uh, yeah, they they let him live. You know, they let him. But they he, he had to do all these uh, drug deals and everything else 
for no money. He never got paid until they got paid back. And, and so this is, this is, has been going on for forever. You know, the DEA and that, and, and because that was the, the DEA, basically a criminal enterprise and same as the, uh, uh, the flying, uh, the drugs from the cocaine from, uh, from, uh, uh, South America, you know, same thing. The DEA would have a flight from uh, Miami, and oh and who's going to search them? No, it's crazy. It's, power, what power does to you, especially yeah, regardless. Yeah. It might not even have the money, but you have the power that could lead yeah. to going to jail or certain things like that. Tommy, you've been in a lot of movies and shows. Seventy show. You were in Zootopia. How has been? the voiceover acting Ben versus the on stage or on set, like being in Zootopia and something like that. Oh, it's a piece of cake. It's so easy. It's so much fun. <laughs> you get paid. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to wear costumes. <laughs> you come in your pajamas. I did Zootopia. I came right out of the hospital and literally wearing not pajamas, but close to it. And right into the sound booth, and boom, did my whole bit. Uh, just right out, of, right out of the. I had an operation for cancer, and and uh, rectal, and, and so yeah. So I'm, you know, I just really my my son picked me up from the hospital, right into the, the into the recording booth at Disney. <laughs> yeah, that was crazy, because I once got kicked out of Disney for wearing a, a, a X-rated T-shirt, and uh, with a Disney character. <laughs> <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and, and so me being at Disney was it was it was quite a thrill. No, the voiceover is so much fun. And apparently they're doing a, a Zootopia too. I haven't got the uh, the thing yet, but I'm quite sure I will because uh, the the yak was quite popular. The naked movie. yoga instructor, yeah. <laughs> yeah, isn't that funny? Isn't that funny? Well, you know, I turned down uh, Lion King. Uh, Cheech was in it, but I turned it down because uh, I couldn't be hypocritical, you know, because Disney had taken a anti-Cheech and Chong stance and anti, you know, and it was it was uh, Katzenberg that that got us uh, got us on that wanted us on that. But I, I you know, after uh, thinking about it, you know, I, I I don't feel bad that I turned it down. Cheech made a ton of money. I never, <laughs> but it was okay, you know, because my, you know, I, I really uh, knew that what I was doing, you know, with the marijuana was not uh, harmful to people. The, the reason I started doing marijuana uh, was because I knew it was healthy because the people that turned me on uh, told me and, and showed me, you know, I, I was a bodybuilder, you know, I still am. And so all the bodybuilders are the ones I, you know, the big ones like Arnold and that, you know, they, they, and, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was another uh, role model where he would smoke and he wouldn't do any alcohol or anything else. And so we knew it was medicine way back then. So, Tommy, one of the questions that we always like to ask everybody, you know, the show is called Living a Legacy, right? Not just leaving a legacy to the next generation, but how are we using our influence to impact the world around us? And that would be, you know, from what I've seen from you, you've, you've taken a cause and you've run with it. And it was very controversial, but you're now seeing the fruit of, of where the rest of the world in many ways is coming on board, especially medically. But what would you say you want to be your legacy? 
I would love being, I would love a, a monument. Uh, not, 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 uh, the, you know, in that, uh, what's that stone mountain where they got all the faces? Uh, mount Rushmore? But I would like to be, yeah, I would like to be up there as, uh, as the guy that, that saved the world. Because I really do have a, a plan to to save the the pandemic, the world, everything. I, I really do have a, a plan that it it doesn't really uh, include. You know, it it makes the marijuana is is okay. It's done. It, it's legal. They're going to make person with bank it and everything else. But right now, we have a, a we've always had a, a racist immigration problem because that's the basis of the marijuana illegal making it illegal was was a racist law you know right from the beginning just like prohibition was a racist law you know uh, and what by, by i say by racist is that in europe they had to have alcohol or beer because the water was so unhealthy no one trusted the water and so you always in the farmers here that's where uh uh johnny appleseed he would sell apples, you know, he's a famous guy. Because, so the farmers could make apple cider because they didn't trust the, the water because of centuries of pandemics and, and, and all sorts of illnesses that came from, from water. And so that's why the alcohol was so important, even in, in Rome, Roman times and that. And so uh, when they had prohibition, it was against the Italians, the Russians, the, the Slavic nations, everybody that used alcohol as their, as their, as their thing. You know, with the Puritans, they, they never, the tea, they were tea drinkers, I think. And marijuana, when they, when they eliminated uh, prohibition on alcohol, then they had to look for something else to keep the revenueers working, the government, and so they came up with marijuana. And so marijuana, so those laws have always been racist. And so if you look back in history, marijuana has always been a, a medicine. Chinese had used it 5,000 years ago. They were using it as a medicine. So what we're doing, actually, we're, we're going back to what it used to be, you know, where it was a medicine. And that's what I want to do. But I also, because marijuana uh, hits you in the creative, in the brain, it, it affects the brain. It goes right to the, to the brain when you get high. We have receptors. And so I've come up with a plan to, to, to actually save the economy, save the world. And I, I, I want to give you, give you it, it's, it's quite involved. It, what it is, really, in, in a nutshell, uh, the movie industry has more capabilities of governing large amounts of people than the government has. Because government used bureaucracy, and, and they're, they're, they're not equipped to handle people. The movie industry treats people like people. They treat kids like kids. They treat adults like adults. They treat old people like old people. You know, they're very cognizant of the, the age of their actors. And, and they have a whole system in place that will take care of, like, if you uh, join the movies, you know, and you're a kid, you have to go to school. You have to do certain things. You can only work so many hours. And when they hire actors from a foreign country, you have to have a place for them to stay. You have to feed them. You have to make sure they're clothed. And they have to join unions. 
And so my, my, my solution is through the movie industry, how we fix our, our world. For instance, the, 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 the caravan that came up that Trump, you know, put the kids in jail and all that. I have a plan where Cheech and Chong's next movie will feature stories from the kids being put in the cages and tracing them back. And what I want to do is bring the kids in as actors and bring the parents in as parents and bring and, and, and also give the parents and their uh, people jobs as, uh, you know, taking care of the kids or extras or, or laborers or whatever, whatever they're, uh, uh, you know, uh, capable of doing. And then also finding houses for them uh, you know, uh, homes for them, and and then employment, and making them join the guilds, and then I can I, I see us revitalizing Hollywood because don't forget, movie companies can handle huge amounts of people. You know, when they did the Ten Commandments, they hired the Egyptian army. Now, when you hire, when you say hire them, that means you got to feed them, clothe them. You know, you got to get costume. You have to do all that thing for them. And some movie companies that could and will be able to change the world that we're living in now without uh, strain because there's a lot of money that can go into being the, the budget to take care of the expenses of it. So very, that's, very, that's very my plan. plan. Tommy Chong, where can we find information on you about your cannabis company? Where can we go? Online, online, TommyChong.com. Hey, Tommy Chong. You know, uh, any anything Tommy Chong, <laughs> it'll be on there. And we're, we're also uh, getting ready to go public. And so there's going to be a big... Uh, also, my, my CBDs have gone crazy. They're, you know, we're selling... And I'm always on uh, the uh, social media uh, with ads and that. In fact, I'm going to be doing a, another ad with someone very shortly. So, so yeah, I'm all over the, the social media. But just stay in tune, you know, <laughs> we'll be doing shows like this and I'll be uh, touting my, my latest uh, uh, scheme. <laughs> what a great interview. Again, thank you again, Tommy. And thanks for uh, stopping by Living a Legacy. I appreciate it, Tommy. Thanks for listening. Join us next time for another amazing episode of Living a Legacy. Living a Legacy.